you got your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and flip over to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. This one is the last book in the Old Testament. So if you're in the New Testament, just start flipping backwards and eventually you're going to come to it. Probably not too, not too far from where you are. Also, quickly, if you, if you don't have a Bible this morning, there should be Bibles scattered through the seating area. I did not confirm this ahead of time, but I'm seeing some. So there should be Bibles around it. And if you just want to flag somebody down, they'd be happy to pass one to you. Just take that with you. That'll be our gift to you. Uh, we'd love for you to have it. We're going to be in Malachi. And uh, I don't know if this is hard for you guys to believe. It's a little bit hard for me to believe. We've, we've actually reached the end of our study in the Minor Prophets. It's over. Maybe you guys are happy about that. I don't know. Uh, and I guess I should qualify that a bit. We, we're sort of finished because we come to the last of the Minor Prophets this morning, but we're also sort of not finished because what we're planning is to spend our Advent season, the, the, the season that the church worldwide sets apart for reflecting on the meaning of Jesus and his coming. We're going to spend Advent with the Minor Prophets and go back into them to the places that the New Testament writers pulled from to explain Jesus and his coming. So that's ahead on the horizon for the first three weeks of December leading up to, to Christmas. And we're also going to spend next Sunday in, in what I think is going to be a really special time for us. We're going to set aside what, the, the sermon that would normally fill this slot in our service and use this slot for a time to reflect as a congregation on our study of the Minor Prophets. We do that for a couple of reasons. One is that, that, that it's... We, don't, we are not committed to biblical preaching just because we have to preach on something and it may as well be this. We, we actually believe that, that God's word is the centerpiece of our life together. It's what, it's what gathers us and that it's also the energy or the life force that changes us, that reverberates through our congregation after it's been heard and shapes how we talk to each other and how we think about uh, living together. And one of the best ways that we know to emphasize that is to give some evidence for it. So that after we've ex- we finish an extended series, we give the congregation a chance to reflect publicly on how they have encountered God's Word that we've, that we've studied together. We did this once last year after a long series in Mark. We're going to do it this year. We'll, we'll probably make it a tradition after a long series. And I'm especially interested in the way this is going to go down this year because these books are so obscure, right? Because they're so hard and so inaccessible on their own. As a preacher, I am kind of dying to know what you guys have how you guys have encountered these books as we've been in them together. So all that to say, please, if you're going to be in town next week, please plan to be with us. It should be a special time. And please, if you're going to be in town next week, give some thought to what you might like to say. Because the worst case scenario is that I stand here and wait for you guys and you, go, you don't come. You're going to get another sermon, only it's going to be off the cuff, and I promise you won't like it. <laughs> for today, we're in Malachi. It's the last of the prophets, the last book written in the Old Testament. It appears last in our canon, and it was probably the last one actually chronologically to be written. For that reason, I think it's so appropriate that its opening statement from the Lord is simply this. I have loved you. I have loved you. In context, not just of this book, not just of this collection of prophets, but of the entire story the Old Testament tells, no statement could be more appropriate. From the early chapters in Genesis, when the perfect world God created was marred by a decision to trust self rather than God, God has responded by going after his people, trying to win them back. Through Abraham, he promised that through this one man who had no children, who had no land, he was going to build a people and make them secure in a land of their own. 
Though Abraham's sons, one by one, all sinned against God, all failed to keep their covenant promises, God's promises held true. When they found themselves bound in slavery, God liberated them. When they found themselves faced with a land promised to them, but now full of giants that they had no power to conquer, God delivered them. When they asked for a king and therefore turned from God as their one true sovereign, one source of rest and trust, God gave them one, and he gave them a good one. He gave them David, and he promised them that David's throne would last forever, that someone would reign on it over his people forever. When their kings turned bad, as we've seen through the prophets through this study, God did judge them, but his judgment was to purge. And it always came with promises, unconditional promises, that he would, in fact, make good on the kingdom that he had promised was coming. The Old Testament is a story of God's love for his people, even when that love gets rejected. The irony of his statement in Malachi, that it opens with his claim that he has loved his people, is that he made this statement here in response to Israel's profound and ongoing doubt of his love. They didn't see it. A couple weeks back, we looked at at the book of Haggai, which is probably the first of the prophets that spoke to Israel after they had come back from where they had been sent in judgment. Babylon came in and wiped them out and took them back to Babylon in a period called the exile. Now they've come back. They come back thinking that this is the time when all those promises that the prophets made are actually going to come to fulfillment. And it didn't take more than 10 years for them to realize that this was a far cry from what they were looking for. Haggai begins to engage them with those expectations. And Malachi is written probably 100 years later, and not much has changed. And at this point, they've kind of thrown their hands up. At this point, they were captivated by problems like poverty, like drought, with the, with the reality they couldn't deny that it was wicked pagan nations who had all the power, who had all the wealth and the security while they were living only at the mercy of these pagans. And you can hear the frustration in their questions in Malachi. Malachi is, is like a, 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 a book of disputations where the prophet imagines what Israel is saying and responds to it. Look at their questions. They're, they're scattered throughout, uh, throughout these chapters one of, the, one of the examples is, is in verse 17 of chapter 2. This is the kind of things they were asking about the Lord. They were asking, where's the God of justice? They were asking, verse 14 of chapter 3, what is the profit of keeping God's charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. What's the point? And perhaps the one question that's hanging over all of those is the one at the beginning of the book. How have you loved us? You claim to have loved us. This is what your love looks like? With friends like God who needs enemies. That's what they were thinking. Ultimately, their questions are the questions of all of us. Any of us who have, who have found themselves in circumstances that don't match up with their theology. When our understanding of God and what he wants for us doesn't match up with what we're experiencing, this is what we ask. Where's the God of justice? What's the point in serving him if it doesn't get us anywhere? How has he really loved us? And their questions, their misreading of their own situation had a lot to do with a misunderstanding of what God's love is like. The fact that the nature of God's love isn't really what we would expect it to be. 
We've talked about the minor prophets as one of the main reasons we study them is that they dramatize the character of God. That's something we said at the very beginning, and we've seen that truth. They dramatize the different aspect of his character, show them in action. Malachi offers to us an example of God's love in action. And what it, what it shows us is some different facets of his love, facets that don't strike us in the way that we would expect, but that illuminate what he's like and call us through, through the beauty that's in them through the counterintuitive nature of his love, call us to rest in it. That's what I want us to look at this morning. What is God's love like from God's response to Israel's claim that he had not loved them? That's Malachi. Now, we're not going to read the entire book together, but I do want to ask you to stand, if you would, in honor of God's word as we read the first section that we'll be looking at. This is in Malachi chapter 1. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 5 together. This is the word of the Lord. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? This is God's answer. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins... The Lord of hosts says, They may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is God's word. You can be seated. God's answer to the question of how he loved them begins in an unexpected place. It begins with a contrast between his love for Jacob and his hatred for Esau. And I think the first answer to our question, what is the love of God like, is that the love of God is free. The love of God is free. Uh, if you've got a worship guide, by the way, you should be able to follow along with the outline that's printed there on one of the, one of the leaves. The love of God is free. What's all this language about God loving Jacob and hating Esau? And how does that prove that he loves Israel? How is that sort of his go-to example for proving that he, that he has love for them? On one level, I think it's rooted in God's promise, an ongoing promise, that he's going to protect his people from their enemies. What you need to know about Jacob and what you need to know about Esau is that they were each the respective founders of these two neighboring nations that hated each other. Jacob, founder of Israel. Esau, the founder of a nation called Edom. You might remember, if you've been with us for most of this series, and there's an entire one of these prophets that's given to promising judgment on Edom because Edom kicked Israel when they were down. When, when Assyria came in and, and, took, and conquered Israel and took some people out, Edom helped them, basically caught people trying to escape and handed them over to the captors. They were historical enemies. And so when God says he loves Jacob and hates Esau, he's saying, I have loved you, I've been for your good, and that means I have also opposed everything that's against you. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that, and this is where it gets counterintuitive. The point here is that these were twin brothers. They were identical morally, and they were indistinguishable. And he chose to love Israel and to hate Edom. He chose to love Israel and to, to hate whatever opposes Israel, and he did this unconditionally. The point is that he loves freely. He doesn't love based on compulsion because he has to love these people, and he doesn't love them based on the, any any fact that they deserve his love because clearly they don't. I want to unpack both of those 
the, both of those facets of it for us. And, and, and some of this, I think, is we can, we can interpret it in this way because Paul does. In Romans chapter 9, one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture, I think, to understand, Paul cites this text and, and shows that it's, it's evidence for the fact that when God loves his people, he does it not because of any goodness in them, but, but, but because of his unconditional choice of them. This language in chapter 1 shows that he loves them even though they don't deserve it. That comes from the fact that these are equal brothers. They were twins. There was no way to tell them apart, and yet God chose to love Jacob. But the, the other facet to it is what he points to in the last phrase in the paragraph. His love for Jacob equals also opposing anything that opposes Jacob, and that shows that his power is not limited to Israel, but that is over all the nations of the world. He pulls the strings for everything that happens. He is, in the last phrase in the paragraph, great beyond the borders of Israel. What God is telling them is, I think, I am, I am loving you. I'm committing to you in spite of the fact that I don't have to. I could go to any nation that I wanted to and commit to them and love them. You're not my only option. Lindsay was telling me earlier, uh, maybe it was a week or two ago. I'm probably going to get the details wrong because I, I didn't ever read about this myself. But there was this uh, country star. I think his name was Trace Adkins. Is that a country star? Yes. I'm getting off the head. He, I think he was at a, a cabin or something, some sort of retreat in rural Tennessee, and he happened to go to a high school football game in the town wherever he was staying. And he was really impressed with them and, and, and liked what he saw, and so he offered to come back and sing the national anthem at their, their high school football game. But he didn't need the gig, right? He, this, is, this is not a guy who just grew up in that town. Maybe it was his alma mater. And, and it was his one shining moment in, 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 in the public eye, and he gets to sing the national anthem at his high school game. He sings to packed out NFL stadiums, not to high school stadiums in rural Tennessee. I think that's God's point to Israel. I am loving you not because I am a territorial deity that just lives in this particular area, and whoever lives here is who I'm stuck with, and so I'm going to make the best of it and love you well. He's saying I'm great beyond the borders of Israel. I can love anybody I want, and I'm choosing to love you. The point here is that his love is free. It's not based on moral quality. It's not based on limited, his limited options, but it's sheerly in his will. And sometimes the freedom of God's love can be off-putting to us, right? Let's, let's be honest. It can, it can seem unfair. Why did he love Jacob and not Esau? That's a question that, that we could spend a lifetime answering. I don't want to try to answer it so much today as ask you to look at it in a different light. Actually, the freedom of God's love and the fact that he loves his children, not because of them and not because he has to, is really good news for us. He loves his children because he loves them. Simple as that. Not because they deserve it. Not, because, not only so long as they continue to deserve it. He loves them because he loves them. It's, it's just the old truism that if... If the person that you love wants to know why you love them, you don't list off a, a bunch of qualities that they have that make you love them. I mean, that can be helpful, but if you say your love for them is based on how they look or how, what their personality is like or their intellect, all those things can change. What happens when they get dementia? What happens when their bodies fall apart? What happens when their personalities change as they grow? You don't love them anymore? You love them because you love them. That's what love is, and that's the nature of God's love, and this example proves it. It's a love that's worth trusting in, worth staking your life to, because it's a love that won't shift because of you. It was never rooted in you anyway. It's a love that's free. 
Now, this aspect of God's love, that, that God's love is free, is directly connected with the second one that I want us to look at. That God's love is also steadfast. His love is also steadfast. That's a word we've come across several times in our study of the prophets, and it's all through the Old Testament, and it's a, it's a very distinctly covenantal word. God has made this binding set of promises to his people, and he is steadfast in it. He won't let go of that covenant. He's committed to keeping it. Malachi gives us a great example of that steadfast love in, in, in action. This one, like so many of the other prophets, is laced with irony. The irony is this. Israel is coming at God as if God has failed to hold up his end of the bargain, when in fact it was Israel who had returned again and again to the disobedience and the religious apathy and the injustice of their forebears. Their ancestors had been judged because of their disobedience, because of their apathy, because of their injustice, ultimately because of their idolatry. They thought they could do better elsewhere. And now, a hundred years after the exile is over, Israel is back to its same old ways. They're accusing God of being fickle in his love when, they, when actually he is continuing to love them in spite of the fact that they are fickle in their behavior. And this comes up in several places in Malachi. I just want to direct you to a couple examples. And basically their failure is shown in Malachi just like it's been shown in the other prophets. It, it's shown in how they relate to God and in how they relate to others. It's the two sides of the law. Love God first, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what shows that you trust him and not some other idol. That's what shows you're secure in him. It showed itself in how they treated God. Verses 1 through 6, or excuse me, chapter 1, verses 6 and following, call out Israel for basically just going through the motions in their religious practices. They were cutting all kinds of corners. I mean, they hadn't just completely abandoned it, but they had tweaked it enough to where they could get the most out of the system while keeping the most for themselves. What they were doing, what they get called out for in that paragraph, is the sacrifices they were bringing to the temple were not of their best animals like they were supposed to be. They were of their worst animals, the animals that were, that were maimed in some way or blind or they were already killed as victims of some sort of violence. They would bring those to offer to God. And, and what, what Malachi is calling them out on is that in giving God their worst and not their best, they're showing how much they value him, right? If you have someone over for dinner and you decide you're going to serve them meat that you just saw on the side of the road that got hit by a car, you just get a deer carcass or something or, or an armadillo or a possum or something, you serve them that, what statement are you making to that dinner guest about how much you value them? Now imagine that you're doing it not just to any random dinner guest, but you're, you're serving this to your governor or your president. They're not going to take it, right? They're going to they're be rightly insulted by it. And that's exactly what Malachi 1 calls Israel out for. Look, at, uh, look down at, uh, at verse 14. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the, the nations. Starting at the, the beginning of it. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I'm a great king. You don't do this to someone who's a great king. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept it or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Obviously not. Israel was treating God in the same way that, that their forefathers had, as something that was dispensable, as maybe helpful, potentially, that's what would try to keep him happy and, and at least keep these regulations going, but as, as not someone fully trustworthy, where you just give him your best and trust that he's got you. They were holding back their best because they relied ultimately on themselves and what they had 
for their security instead of on God. It also showed itself up in how they were treating others. This, this lack of trust in God, this fickle nature of their obedience to him and rest in him. Chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 10, calls them out for injustice towards others. Something that always goes hand in hand with, with idolatry and devaluing God. Verse 10 says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? The paragraph goes on to give some examples. They were intermarrying with, with women from pagan nations who worshipped foreign gods and therefore bringing that whole, that whole complex of foreign gods into their homes, into their communities. Then it also, they're also called out for divorce, as if God himself did not witness to their marriage and, 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 and see himself as the binding force for their marriage. They were getting divorces not for any legit reason, but just because of just of convenience, because they didn't like their spouse anymore. They weren't faithful, in, this, in the words of this paragraph, to the wives of their youth. These are just signs of, the, of something deeper that's already happened to them. They have turned from God, and they no longer consider him someone worthy of being obeyed. The gist, I guess, of, of their position, of their outlook, is in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. You see the point? They, get, they throw up their hands. It, is, it doesn't pay to serve God. This is what, if this is what it gets us, it's not worth the effort. Now given their behavior, isn't it ironic that they are coming at God with questions about his faithfulness to them? Given their, their behavior, the question isn't why hasn't God given them what they're looking for, but why hasn't God completely destroyed them? And the answer is only found in his steadfast love. That his is a love bound by covenant and not the behavior of his people. It remains true. And even on the backside of the judgment that was the exile, it is, it is the love that drives him to restore his people and drives his promises through the prophets because it is not fickle like our love, but it is steadfast. That's where God goes in, in, in his exchange with Israel in Malachi in chapter 3, verse 6. The only reason they're not destroyed, verse 6 says, is that the Lord doesn't change. His love is steadfast. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. That is the major theme of the Old Testament, other than God's love, is his people turning from him over and over and over again. Return to me. See, where he meets them in their turning from him is not with a snap judgment against them that would have been justified, but an appeal to them to return to him. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, some of the best marriage advice, or really advice for any relationship that is going is to end up with conflict in it, that I've ever heard and, and that I've always tried to pass on is that you've always got to check yourself first, right? When you, when you run the conflict, check your own heart first because chances are it's at least in part in your fault. It is at least in part your fault. And, and a gospel-centered approach is one that accepts the fact that we're all marred by sin and therefore the only way to move forward in conflict is to deny yourself as Jesus did. Our tendency is to be defensive and to deflect blame. I think that the same advice works for us when we think about how we relate to God. 
Because sometimes we, in, we, we find ourselves in sort of internal conflict with him, like Israel was here, where we're challenging him and, and what he says is true and, and how he feels about us. We often find ourselves asking why would God let us experience certain things, why he would do things to us. And I think if we take anything from this aspect of Malachi, that, that this evidence for God's love as something that's steadfast, it has to be that, that when something doesn't, in our experience doesn't square up, with our theology, chances are we have changed, not God's love. God's love is constant and steadfast. And, of course, there will be times when we suffer mysteriously, not because of anything wrong that we've done, but because the world is broken and God, God does what God does. But often, Scripture teaches us that God uses difficult times to purge us of self-reliance and sin because He loves us and He disciplines those that He loves. So sometimes... In times of difficulty, the question is not, why have you abandoned me, God? But to look at yourself first and see where you have abandoned him. When you're angry at God, check your heart first. Let me give you one quick example. This, this is something that I found myself doing a lot. Um, I have a t- Maybe it's because I'm somewhat type A in some, in some ways. Maybe a lot of you think I'm totally type A. I don't know if you know me. In some areas in... in um, uh, I, I tend towards self-reliance a lot. And, and sometimes if there's a particular area, say, that I'm struggling with in sin and I just can't seem to shake it, um, some sort of sin pattern that's got a grip on me, there have been times where I have just sort of thrown up my hands and deflected that to God as if it's his problem, right? Or why won't you take this away from me? Right? Don't you want me to be holy? Don't you see that I'm trying so hard to to beat this? Why don't you just take it away? Why do you keep letting me deal with it? The point is that God's sin is not, or my sin is not God's problem. My sin is, is my problem, and God has offered me a solution to it, but not one that depends on me actually working it out as if I have the power in me to conquer it, but one that depends on me being broken enough by it to recognize just how much I depend on him. That's a, that's a message I'm constantly having preached to myself because I forget it so often. And it's, I think it's a message that Malachi drives us to. Israel blamed God for their woes when they were the ones who had changed. They had not yet been broken enough by their own failures and weaknesses to turn to God as their only source of hope. And that's what this book calls them to. God's love is steadfast. Third, and more quickly, God's love is inviting. God's love is inviting. And this one is also a little bit counter to what we expect because maybe you've noticed something about Malachi, even in, in what we've already read. Along with these promises of God's love and these indications that it's steadfast and immovable, there are also these promises of judgment. And that's something we've seen hand in hand in, in, in a lot of the minor prophets. God promises hope, but he also promises judgment. How are we supposed to understand that? It's true that in his love, God is not going to be patient forever. Indeed, I think this book, if, any, if anything, is a promise that history is not cyclical. It's moving in one direction. And a lot of times we are prone to thinking that the same old, same old happens, right? That, that, that the same ideas get popular, unpopular, come back again. That, the same, uh, that, that people's patterns come and go, but they, it, it, it's all in a big cycle. You see the same things over and over. That that nations rise and nations fall, that the seasons just keep on coming and so do our patterns of behavior. 
And on a micro level, I think that's true. I mean, even Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament sort of throws up his hands and says, there is nothing new under the sun. We are stuck in a rut. But on a macro level, that isn't true. God is working all of history towards a final day, a day that the prophets have introduced to us as the day of the Lord, a day of judgment and a day of salvation. And part of what breaks the cycle, part of what keep, part of what will come at one point, once and for all in history, is a messenger, a messenger of the day of the Lord that's predicted right here in Malachi. And what I want us to see is that this messenger that's coming to predict the day of the Lord, to prepare for it, is actually, even though his warning is harsh and hard to hear, is actually an act of God's love to us. Just look first at, the, at a couple of the, the mentions of this messenger Verse 1 of chapter 3 is the first one. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. Then in chapter 4, the the sort of summary of all of what's in Malachi mentions this prophet again and identifies him with Elijah. Verse 5 of chapter 4 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, quickly before getting into what this is about, I want to mention that in verse 6, That phrase, the way my Bible translates it, is a little bit hard to understand. Turning fathers to children and children to fathers, it's not exactly sure what that, it doesn't, it's not obvious what that would be about. And a couple of the commentaries that I read said actually another way to translate the phrase and perhaps a better way in this context is that it's, he will turn children as well as their fathers and fathers as well as their children. So basically an image of mass turning to God before the day of destruction. Now, what's this about? It's something we're going to actually get into in a couple weeks because the New Testament finds this to be a reference to John the Baptist, to this figure who comes in history before the Christ to prepare his way, to speak a word of his coming and a word of warning and a call for repentance. We're going to get into that in, our first of our, in the first of our Advent um, series. For now, I just want to emphasize that the coming of this messenger and his warning is actually an incredible act of God's love, even if on the surface of it, it's a message that seems harsh or vindictive. And what we've been trying to say all along as we've considered these images of judgment through the prophets is that the real question we've got to ask is not whether or not we like these images, but whether or not they're true. Is it true that God judges sin? And if it is true that God judges sin, then any warning to repent before it's too late is not an act of a vindictive God, but an act of love. Let me give you an analogy. I, uh, I am a card-carrying member of two libraries in this city. I'm a member of Vanderbilt University Library and of the Nashville Public Library. They have very similar lending uh, privileges. They both give me a little receipt that tells me what day the book is due whenever I check the books out. But there's a big difference between these two systems, and that difference has cost me a lot of money over the years. National Public Library doesn't give me any warning when my books are going to be due. They assume that that receipt that they gave me is still on me somewhere and that I'm responsible enough to keep track of it 
and then I will bring them back in time. And that's why I carry around pretty much 15 to 20 bucks of fines at any given time for Nashville Public Library. Vandy Library, however, gives me an email seven days before the book is due and tells me that it's due. And then gives me another email on the day that the book is due so that I can bring it by. Usually I haven't taken it back yet and I remind them and I go bring it back. Now they don't have to do that. They've told me what day the book is due and I'm obligated to keep that commitment and bring it back and they actually have an interest in getting money out of me. They don't have to send me those warnings. Those warnings are an act of grace and love to me. And love may be a stretch, but at least grace. (laughs) At least grace. And I think you can see the point. This message of, of judgment is not one that's easy to hear, but if it's true, it's not an act of a vindictive God, but a, a loving God who wants the hearts of children and fathers turned back to him before it's too late. So, friend, if you're here this morning and you're, and you're hearing this maybe for the first time, have you ever thought that, that, these, that this message, even the fact that you're hearing it this morning, is an act of God's love to you? The fact that this has been preserved for hundreds of years so that we could read it is an act of God's love? And, and, and have you thought about the fact that, that because it's a warning and not just an announcement, it's not just an announcement that he's going to judge, it's a warning that's coming, it is at the same time an invitation. It is both a warning and an invitation to salvation before it's too late. That's, that's the way I want this to land with you this morning. It's a warning, but it's, a, it's an invitation sent to you by God's love. Repent before it's too late. This could be the day of your salvation, finally and quickly. God's love is self-centered. God's love is self-centered. And maybe this is the most counterintuitive of all the aspects of God's love that come through in Malachi. His love is first and foremost for himself. References to this come up throughout the book. Uh, it comes up in chapter 1 when he's condemning Israel's insulting religious practices. And what he says is that by bringing me basically roadkill to to, for your sacrifices, you are, and this is what he says, this is the quote, despising my name. You are despising my name. And we can see why that's the case. They're saying this is what you're worth. You're worth roadkill. It's also why judgment here and in earlier prophets is meant to vindicate his name to expose the false statements that are made about who he is and what he's worth. And it's why those who receive salvation, celebrated here in Malachi and through the other prophets, are those who, Malachi 2, 5 says, stand in awe of his name. Or Malachi 4, 2 says, who fear his name, who recognize and honor him for who he is. So what's this about? Let me say something first about why this is right, and then quickly about why it's good news for us. Why it's right that God's love should primarily, first and foremost, be about himself. It seems wrong to us because it would be wrong for us, right? We don't like people who are cocky. And one of the reasons that we don't like them is that we know that their arrogance is unjust. Their arrogance is them thinking they're better than they are, better than other people. And we know that that's not true. And we know that the esteem that they hold themselves in in their arrogance, is an esteem that's meant only for God. They are idol worshipers, in other words. For us, it would be wrong to make ourselves the primary object of our love. But for God, it's perfectly holy. And here's why. God's standard for his own holiness is exactly the same as his standard for our holiness. And it has everything to do with whether or not we love what is most lovable and value what is most valuable 
It has everything to do with whether or not we treat him for who he is. Ultimately, the whole purpose of creation was to reflect his glory. The Bible talks about him as one who's perfect in every way, who had no need that he needed to fill by creating this world as if he was lonely, as if he needed some sort of companionship or had an, needed an ego boost. It pictures God as perfectly self-sufficient and, and, and just fine without this world. But that he creates this world, that the heavens that he created declare his handiwork. They give praise to him. Think of this world as a world full of mirrors, like a hall of mirrors simply there to reflect God and what he's like. And yet the very thing that sin does is pervert that purpose for all of creation. It puts us at the center. It puts us at, the, at, the, at that which is most valuable and lovable and takes God out of that place. That's why judgment has got to set that right. And that's why God loves himself first because he's in his perfect holiness. He is primary in his affections. He would be an idolater if he loved anything more than he loved himself, just like we are an idolater if we love anything more than we love God. Now, let me close by suggesting that this is actually really, really good news for us. On the one hand, it could seem like that's not the case because we see language of judgment and God's setting everything right. But have you noticed that it's not just God coming in judgment to vindicate his name, but that he also vindicates his name by perfectly supplying the needs of all those who trust in him rather than any other source. He loves to give joy and rest and life to all who stake themselves to him rather than any other object of hope. We've seen several images of this in our study of the prophets, but I want to close our study with the image that comes in chapter 4, verse 2. For you who fear my name, the Lord says, for those of you who trust in me, who reverence me and honor me as that which is supremely valuable, lovable, and trustworthy. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You connect with that imagery? It's the image of a sun, of light, of light that dispels the darkness of sin and want and fear and deprivation. It's the light that Jesus is as light of the world who comes to a people who walked in darkness. It's a light that gives illumination where there was ignorance. It's also a son of righteousness that gives righteousness to those who had none of their own, to those whose best righteousness was nothing but a pile of filthy rags. This son of righteousness gives what is his and makes it ours. It's a son of righteousness that comes with healing in its wings. In the rays of sun that go out to the ends of the earth, there is healing to heal up those who have no joy, those who are broken by their own sin, broken by the very brokenness of the world. It's an image that he captures with that of a calf pouncing out of his stall. Have you ever seen this? Any of you maybe didn't grow up in rural areas? This is not something that's like a great image for you to connect with. But what it is is this image of life, of vibrancy and joy that when once set free goes crazy. You ever see a, a calf that's young in its prime? Not, not one that's just real wobbly and just born. I mean one that's kind of hitting its peak and has all this energy that's only contained by being stuffed into a stall. And when you let him out, he just goes crazy. That's the image of one whose joy is so complete because it's rooted in the fear of God's name. And do you see how that honors him? It shows him that he can deliver what nothing else can. 
We are offered hope in so many sources in this world. It comes to us in the form of our physical appearance or success at work or the, the size of our bank accounts and the perfection of our children. It comes to us in so many ways, and all of them will let us down. None of them will leave us leaping like a calf from the stall. But if we trust in God and put our hope in him only, if we put him where he belongs, let this be the message of the minor prophets to you. You will leap like a calf charging out of its stall. Will you pray with me?